doing? Everybody looks a little more flushed than normal. We've got, we've got a rosy hue in the sanctuary today. Man, glad you're here. It's so good to be with God's people, to be enjoying um, what the Lord is doing. Even in the hardest of moments, uh, you and I are going to find ourselves uh, with life changing. We're going to find ourselves uh, in the middle of, especially some of us my age and older, I mean, we're going to be really moving on the fly here with, with how we uh, operate in the country that we are being handed. So we need to be wise, we need to be shrewd, we need to be loving. Uh, I think most of all, we need to understand that this is not uh, by accident, that the Lord is not caught off guard with the things that are changing right before us. He has a mission to accomplish, and it is between, uh, uh, it, is, it is for us to do. And so even as our culture shifts, as things change, going to the grocery store and things like that, like everything is different. I'm just begging everyone here to understand that God was not surprised and that he is working for his honor, for his glory. And if God uh, decides that our culture that is uh, very, very self-sufficient needs to be brought to its knees to remember that we're not self-sufficient, then you and I need to pray, so be it. And God, make us ready for what is to come. We're going to look a little bit about that today. Like we've been going through these stories in the Old Testament. This morning is the guardrails of grace. Be at 1 Samuel chapter 27. Uh, been really happy with the feedback that certain people have, have given, especially in the last couple months of looking at the life of David, um, that these things are actually applicable to what's going on in your life right now. That even though we're not diving into theological concepts, we're looking at the story of people that, that loved the Lord, some of them that did good things, some of them that failed. We're looking at those stories and we're seeing theology through living real life. I hope that's what's coming from these stories. David is a wonderful example of what it looks like for a real man, a real person, to live in faith of God's goodness. Why? Well, because there are some failures that come up in his life. And those failures give you and I hope. You see, if Jesus was the only example, we would be in big trouble. Because he operates in the realm of perfection. You and I don't get that chance. We don't get that choice. Like the little babies and the toddlers running around here, nobody had to teach us how to lie. Nobody had to teach us how to say mine. Those are pieces of that sin nature that we have been handed down in our DNA. And so the sin of Adam comes down, the nature of Adam comes down, you and I don't get a choice. So if Jesus is the only example, we find ourselves in big trouble because we're not going to reach that bar ever. But when you and I start looking at the other stories in Scripture, we see some other things. Number one, we see the idea that David was a man after God's own heart, and yet for the second week in a row, we're going to watch David struggle. And that's good news. Though the story is painful to read through, it's good news that David gets to struggle. And at the end of his life, he still gets to be known as someone of faith. He still gets to be known as someone, as a, as a man after God's own heart. That gives you and I hope that our failures and our mess-ups don't write the whole story. When you get to Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, you see it over and over and over. There are a lot of people mentioned in that chapter that if it were for one story, they would not be there. 
even looking at the totality of their life. Even Samson, when you read about his life, it was mostly mess-ups, and yet somehow he makes it into the hall of faith. Listen, there is hope for me and you. And we see these stories, we see this uh, theology of God as we work through these stories. Why? Because we see him interact. So where were we a couple weeks ago? I told you all we are watching the second week of David in need. Two weeks ago we talked about the fool, a fool, and the peacemaker. The fool was a man named Nabal. What do we know about the fool? The fool is passive, constantly passive. They are constantly hesitating. They are disrespectful. They are greedy. Most of them exaggerate to make a point or to get their manipulation done. And a lot of times they are widely known. You know certain people that when their name is mentioned, they are a fool. You know that you are not to interact with them on a long-term basis and expect good results. Some of them live in our own families. And so we need to be careful. We know the fool. Nabal was the fool. Then we have a fool. What happens? David gets ready to make a foolish decision. What do we see about David's life in that passage? He doesn't know his audience. Remember, David goes, he sends his men to Nabal, and he says, ask him for something that we may feast to. Ask him for a gift. He doesn't know his audience. Why? Because when his men get there, they are mocked, they are disrespected, David is disrespected and they are sent on. So David didn't know his audience. He gets insulted and then instead of uh, dealing with it properly, he lets his rage and his vengeance start to work. David, being a fool at the moment, wants to bring other people into his rage with him. So 400 men dress for battle and they get ready to leave and they're getting ready to dole out their own vengeance. What happens to a fool? When we're being a fool in the moment, we replay things over and over and over. Your mind and your heart cannot escape. Either a bad decision or the insult or the pain somebody doled out on you. If you and I find ourselves playing that on repeat, understand you're being set up for failure. The enemy is working on you. If it's conviction from the Holy Spirit, then when you repent, it goes away. And so we need to be careful of what, what, what our minds are churning us. And then we make hasty decisions for vengeance. David is getting ready to make a foolish decision. In the moment that's, that's happening, he is being the fool, a fool. And then look at the peacemaker. We see Abigail come into the picture. What do we see? The peacemaker is approachable. They hear the whole story. The peacemaker sees collateral damage. They see the damage that's going to be played out on their family or their friends if this continues to go on. The peacemaker sees collateral damage. More people are going to be affected. The peacemaker moves. They do something. The peacemaker overcomes the faults of others. The peacemaker leverages their resources for the good of many. The peacemaker knows a sabotage and leaves them out of the plan. Remember, Abigail didn't even tell her own husband what she was going to do. Why? Because he would have sabotaged the plan. The peacemaker owns more than their part of the issue. They apologize for more than they should. They take ownership for things that they had really no control over. They step into those moments and love people well by owning as much as they can and giving shade to other people. That's what the peacemaker does. That is the whole idea of what Jesus does on the cross for you and I. And finally, the peacemaker always appeals to a higher moral authority. 
If you and I are going to find peace and make peace, we have to find an authority that's bigger than just our opinion versus their opinion. You see, the peacemaker is known as the son and the daughter of God. Abigail in the Old Testament is a picture of what it looks like for Jesus' words to be fulfilled in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons and the daughters of God. So we saw the story of David a couple weeks ago, and today we're going to see a lot of the same thing. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27 with me. A couple short chapters today that we're going to look at because they tell the same story that I want us to see all in one Sunday. Verse, uh, chapter 27, verse 1. Actually, go back just one verse. Chapter 26, the end. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. What happens? David spares Saul's life a second time. A second time, God has gotten tremendous victory in the heart of David by not allowing him to pour out wrath on the king. David's honor has been held intact once again by the Spirit's interaction. And that is the end of chapter 26. But what happens in chapter 27, we see this change. And this is where I think you and I need to put ourselves in the middle of this story and just remember that we are fragile, we are frail, that our hearts and our emotions can be manipulated very, very easily. And so David comes out of a mountaintop experience where the Holy Spirit has conquered the evil within him. And he walks into chapter 27 and what happens? Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What a heartbreaking transition. From the mountaintop of victory. When Saul, when his enemy looks at him and says, You're going to do great things, David. Saul's mouth has prophesied that David would be king and that his kingdom would be a lasting kingdom. Saul's own mouth has already done that on repeat. And yet David finishes that mountaintop and just the weariness being so tired, right? After years of running and years of struggling, David is wore out. He's tired of the fight. He's tired of running. And you just hear it in his words. Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. Years of running. David is tired. His heart hurts. His home has been taken, and his faith seems distant. And in that, he starts to verbalize things that really sow seeds that are going to bear out the next 16 months of his life. There's nothing better for me here. I'm going to run, I'm going to flee, and I'm going to get away from Saul. He's hurting. The preparation of a sinful decision looks a lot like this moment. There's nothing better for me here. Can you see what's already missing from David's heart? We'll explain it a little bit more as we go through. The preparation for a sinful decision looks and sounds a lot like this. We get desperate, we get 
uh, uh, lonely, we get tired, we're tired of the fight, we're tired of the struggle, and we're just going to cash it in and walk away. David does that in this passage. I would remind you at the bottom of the, of the slide, you see the word halt, H-A-L-T. Many, many years ago, I heard Charles Stanley preach a sermon, and he made the comment that if you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you better halt, you better stop. Because you are one bad decision away from making a mess. David is these things. We've, we've seen just a couple chapters ago that he's asking a wicked man for food to feast. So he's probably hungry. He's been removed from his people. He's probably lonely. He's tired. And I can guarantee you he's angry. The crazy part is he has reason to be angry. He's been falsely accused. On repeat, told that he was going to be murdered and killed for things that he didn't do and, and things that he didn't want to do. So when you look at this story, don't see someone that doesn't have the right to feel this way. See someone that has those rights but can still make a bad decision. Because David does. Look at chapter or look at verse two with me. So David arose and he went over. He and six hundred men who were with him to Akish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. You see, the struggle of life is a good and sovereign God and men with wicked wills. See, it is the struggle that you and I deal with. I mean, even downstairs this morning in Sunday school, this idea of the sovereignty of God comes up. He is in control. He is in charge. His ultimate ending will happen. The life of Jesus Christ is that picture. If any man should have been stopped, it should have been him. And yet, instead of being stopped, he fulfilled his mission perfectly. And so a sovereign God and the will of man interact. That is the struggle you and I deal with Every day. So what do we know? Well, we know David's been anointed king. We know David's life and his heart are precious to God. We also know that David is the lineage of Christ. And so when you see his heart start to speak about things, what you and I are seeing is he is hungry, he's lonely, he's tired, and he's angry. And he starts to verbalize things that he knows are false. He knows they're not correct. Why? Because Samuel has anointed him king. The existing king has pronounced it over him. He slaughtered the Goliath the Philistine and he saved the army of Israel. God's fingerprints have been all over his life. They have blessed him all the way up until now. But in this moment of trouble, what happens? Instead of believing or remembering the things about his life and his past, David flees to go stay with the enemy. David takes his family with him. And David takes some of the other Hebrew people with him as well. And now instead of being in Israel with his people, even if they are fleeing from the king who he has been spared from this whole time of running, now they are lodging with the enemy. And for 16 months, the anointed king lives with the Gentiles at Gath. Keep reading with me. Look at verse 5. 
Then David said to Akish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Akish gave Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And a number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So for a year and four months, David ends up in a foreign land. He ends up serving a wicked king. We're going to see in the next couple verses that he ends up attaching himself deeply with these people. And in all of that, he's going to find himself in a really poor position. He's going to find himself in a spot that is going to be very hard to get out of. You see, David is now double-minded and he's living a double life. In verses 11 to, or 8 to 11, read with me. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the uh, Gersherites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur in the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, and the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. So, uh, such was the custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. Sifting through what's happening in David's life right now takes more time than you and I have allotted. But let's just say this, he's living a double life. He is engaging in things and then lying about them later on. He is coming back to the king with what the king has requested, what the king has mandated. He's coming back to him and he's laying those things down, but where he got them or how he achieved them has been clouded. And so what do you and I see? We see hidden sin and hidden glory. David's life, he's, he's hiding his sin, he's living a double life, and in that God is not receiving any glory. The most troubling part of chapter 27 is this, who is missing? Who is missing is God. It's David, it's Akish, it's his men. There is no God touching this chapter, at least as far as verbal glory or honor. David's life is accomplishing things, but at what cost? His destiny and his kingdom, uh, usefulness, it's either being dampened right now or destroyed with this exile. For 16 months, he is accomplishing things, but we don't see anything for the kingdom of God. We don't even see God's name mentioned. We don't see God's glory mentioned. David is achieving these things on his own. And in that, we see that God is absent, at least to our eyes and to our ears. Look at verse 12. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. What a wicked trust comes about between Achish and David. David's ungodly decisions have allowed a yoking to a wicked man and a wicked kingdom. David's actions have basically made it to where this king thinks that he, there is no chance of redemption after this. Like he has messed up so poorly 
He will be with me until the day I die. What a wicked, wicked trust that's being built. But what do we see next in this passage? Well, 1 Samuel 28, just read a couple more verses with me. The Lord pays attention. The Lord is paying attention. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. There are some connections here being made that are going to really call into question what side David is on. Do you see where this is going to end up landing him? This idea that comes about, this plan that comes about without God's faith, without faith in God, and without God's glory involved in making the decision is now landing him in a position where he is protecting the king of the enemy of the nation of Israel. And so from fleeing for his life and being an honored individual in the nation of Israel where he will one day be king. Why? Because God has said so. He is now the bodyguard for the enemy of the nation of Israel. And what happens in the rest of chapter 28? The rest of chapter 28, the Philistines are lining up for war against the nation of Israel. And so David, do you see the position David is in now? I told you a couple weeks ago, what kind of culture is this? This is an honor culture. To destroy your own honor, to go against your word, was to curse you forevermore. Your children and your grandchildren could not get away with what you had done. And now David is set in the position where he is bodyguard to the enemy's king. And now they're lining up for war against the nation of Israel. He himself has chosen not to raise his hand against the king of Israel or his own people. And now he's going to find himself in the middle of war. And so we see in, verse, uh, in chapter 29, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on the rear with the king Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? That's an amazing question to be asked. It is getting ready to solve a lot of problems for David. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Verse 4, But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. What do you and I see right now? We see the guardrails of grace. Like the bumpers at a bowling alley. Right? Like your kids might not understand what's happening, but when you go out and you plop those things out, you have basically nullified them at least with total failure, right? unless they can't get it there. But the bumpers come out, and the ball usually hits a pin. 
Whereas if there are no bumpers and you go with kids, it becomes a very long day, right? A lot of zeros on the board, keeping scores really easy, but the frustration builds as you see the same thing happen the whole time. Like God puts out these guardrails of grace for David. And I'm hoping that you see your life as I see my life. Been so many times that we've made plans and went to execute them and something comes up, something goes wrong. In the last story, it's Abigail and how honoring she is and, and what kind of amazing person she is. She comes forward and she lays out the case and she keeps David from doing something very, very terrible. But in this passage, David is getting ready to do something even worse. He's going to go to Nabal's family and he is going to avenge a dishonoring. And there would be a certain amount of expectation in that culture. Nabal got what he deserved. Unfortunately, so did his children and his grandchildren. That would have been the idea. It would have been sad. There would have been innocent blood shed. But everybody in that area that heard that story would have said, well, he kind of got what was due him. This story is totally different. David is getting ready to make the rest of his life very miserable because if the song being sung is Saul has slain his ten thousand or his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands, oh yeah, and David also slain a couple thousand Jews, a couple thousand of his own people. That's one line that's getting ready to be written. The other one would sound like this: David has no honor because he wouldn't even honor his word to the king of Achish. So he's walking out to battle as the bodyguard of the king. He will either fulfill his promise as a man of honor or he will start to murder his own people, which one day he will be king of. This is not going to end well. He's going to be forced to violate something very, very important. His life is getting ready to get very, very hard. And yet the Philistine commanders come in. Look at verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should ma march out and uh, in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day you were coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. Verse 7. So go now back and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Look at the change in his language. He is speaking to the Philistine king, and he says, my Lord, the king. This is a very hard moment. And Akish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants, with uh, the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You see, chapter twenty-nine, verses six to eleven. The decision is taken out of David's hands. This is a magnificent grace from God. The decision that he has is to fight for the Philistines or honor his word and murder his own people. And it's removed from his hands. 
Because the guardrails of grace, even though he is set up to make a bad decision on his own, who is missing from chapter 27 and chapter 29? God Almighty. The honor and the glory of Jehovah. And so in that, David makes a mess, and God protects him even in the mess making. See, it's handed to him by God through disobedient men in a disrespectful and disappointing manner. He comes in to do battle. He is ready to do battle. And he is disrespected. His honor is broken. Why? Because the Philistine commanders come in and say, we're not going to battle with that guy. I don't care if he has been here a year and four months and you have no issue with him. If we go down into battle and he deems it necessary or he wants to, he will start gaining favor with Saul by killing us. We're out. And Akish looks at David and says, we're going to go with their plan. So even though you've made a horrible plan, God protects him. David's hands and David's heart are again kept pure by the interaction of God on his behalf. The Lord stops something that would have tainted the rest of his life. First it was righteous Abigail. Now it's a wicked group of Philistine commanders. And so what do you and I get out of this? I think we need to get the, the idea that there is a faith that knows. Like, now our faith is the substance of things hoped for, is it Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It is the evidence of things not seen. You see, we may not be able to see, but we can know who God is. We can have a faith that knows, right? And when you put these pieces together, what do we see? Psalm 34, 8 says this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, David has lost track of that idea in chapter 27 when he starts to be upset and he starts to be frustrated. And he says, there's nothing else for me. There's nothing better for me than to run, than to go, than to leave. He forgets that he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We may not be able to see with sight what God is doing, but we can see and feel and experience and know his goodness. It comes in your prayer time. It comes when you're around God's people. It comes in the blessings that pour out that we don't deserve. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is a command. Dare we even say it's one of those really audacious prayers that we could pray. Lord, I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to taste you. I want to experience you. He desires, he longs to answer that kind of prayer. So that we know he's good. How about this one? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Jeremiah 32, 27. So what else can we know? That God is powerful. You see, if he is just loving, but he's impotent, he cannot fix what's going on, he does us very little good. He's always surprised and, and waiting for something to work out or he's sitting up there with his thumbs just twiddling them, just hoping that it turns out okay. That's not the God we serve. He's not the ushy-gushy pawpaw that lets you get away with murder. That's not the God we serve. He is powerful. 
Is there anything too hard for him is the question. And the answer is absolutely not. If you're the nation of Israel and you're reading this story and you think about the, the stories that your parents and your grandparents have told you, when you walk past, remember that big crazy word, that Ebenezer, when you walk past those stones and your ancestors are telling you that's the stones that come out of the middle of the Red Sea. Those are the stones that come out of the middle of the Jordan River. They are set there as a reminder that there is nothing too powerful for God. So He is loving, Psalm 34, 8. He is all-powerful, Jeremiah 32, 27. So what do you and I have to fear? If you're David at the beginning of chapter 27 and you got a chance to remake this decision, where is your mind and your heart now? Are you still going to deviate for 16 months outside of God's people and God's place and God's plan? Are you going to be put in a position where if He doesn't come through, you are in big trouble? Or are you going to remember that my God is good and He loves me? That He is powerful. He will make a way. That He's already promised me certain things and I have nothing to fear. How about this one? 1 John chapter 5 says this, For everyone who was born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory over the world, our faith. And so that we see He's good, and we see He's powerful. You know what else we see? That He has overcome. Christ said, in the world you're going to have trouble. In the world you're going to have trouble. Take heart. Be of good courage. Right? Steel down your spine. Pour the steel down your spine. Pour it down mine. I have overcome the world. 1 John chapter 5 says that for everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And what is that victory? That victory is our faith. Even before it is made uh, known in a resurrected body, even before our faith is made known by that last breath we take when we meet Him, even before we have already overcome the world why because your faith my faith can give us peace within everything that the world doles out and if you look at the circumstances with which we're watching our nation and our world be unraveled when you see faith and peace and joy when you see people doing things that show their love of God it blows the world away why because they're too busy destroying things to build anything and so say, how do, you, how do you already have victory? You already have victory because what is bothering them is not bothering you. It's a victory. Your faith in what? Your faith in God. He is good. He is all-powerful. He has promised me victory. And how about this one, Romans 8, 28. Before we get to the finish line, all things work together for good. Them that love God and are called according to His purpose. So when we get to that verse, we get to look in reverse and say, Lord, I don't know how you do it, but even the bad decisions I made, once repented of, have made me the person I am today. The struggles that I had have made me the person I am today. I know Jesus more today. I know His grace because I needed it. I know His power and His maturity because He's brought me through these things. You see, that is a faith that knows. We're not waiting on heaven we're not waiting to see him why because you and I are experiencing him right now 
We speak downstairs at uh, Sunday school this morning. It's just amazing how these things just line up. God knows what he's doing. But one of the most amazing confirmations in the world is when you show up at a random place and there's this connection between you and someone else and you find out in the first couple sentences that person is a Christian. Or they look at you and they gravitate right towards you. They want to talk. They want to open themselves up. They want to, to, to have a shoulder to speak to. They need that encouragement, so they gravitate right towards you. It's one of the most amazing things in the world to be picked out as one of God's people. And then in the middle of nowhere to be in a position where the Lord has brought someone else into your sphere and brought family close by. Listen, that is a faith, that is a victory that the world knows nothing about. And as we watch things change at a drastic pace, we have to dive back into these four issues. Is he good or not? Is he strong or not? Has he promised victory and will he come through or not? And does he promise me that anything that lands in my lap and I, I, it, it feels almost heretical to even say it like this, but even the bad decisions that I make, once repented of, are used by God to change me, make me, mold me into something I would have never been had I not failed. Now that's only something He can do. That's not within our knowledge. Like I can walk out of here today and say, I'm going to do something stupid so God makes me smarter. That's not how this works. I'm going to test him. Even Jesus didn't do that. Even Jesus doesn't even operate in that way, right? Like complete perfection, complete attachment to God through the Holy Spirit the whole time he's living. Even he doesn't do that. I would be a fool to operate that way. But looking backwards, it is a tremendous grace. You can't use that passage going forward. You have to use it in reverse. So, God, you're working all things out. Now, I can think about it this way. Whatever I run into tomorrow, God, you're going to use, and the answer would be yes. We live wise. We live shrewd. You and I want to honor him. We want to love him. We want to be closer to him. But at the end of the day, bad things are going to happen. And these four promises that we see in this passage, David lets go of them and lands in the Philistine camp protecting the Philistine king. You and I need to have them right on the front every day of our hearts, of our minds, drawing close to them because they will be what buoy us through this moment. And if your faith, if your faith is weak and your theology is weak, you will not be prepared for what's coming. We just won't. And we need right now to be making these decisions while there's daylight, while it's a little bit easy, while we're in the initial workings of something. Why? Because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Better to make these decisions and settle them in your heart while you have a clear mind than it is to try to do it when it's cloudy and hurt and worried. David missed the opportunity in chapters 27 and 29 and God grabbed a hold of him and make sure he didn't do something that ruined the rest of his life. And for that, you and I ought to raise our hands and bless God's name. That being said, as we move forward, we have to make peace with the theology that gives us hope and joy and strength for the road. As they come this morning to play, that's my invitation to you. 
Are you thanking God for the guardrails that he's thrown up? Can you look back? I mean, honestly, can you look back in your life right now and remember when something was supposed to work out, should have worked out, but it didn't? Can you remember how it didn't work out? You had a, a job offer here. You had something you wanted to do. Maybe it was a, a major in college. Maybe it was something totally different. Like maybe it was that boyfriend or that girlfriend that you thought you were going to marry, right? Maybe it was just some fling that you had that you thought was going to turn in your husband, and they did, and it was amazing. Four kids later and just happily married. Maybe it was something like that. I don't know, but have you ever just thought about the things that were stopped? Maybe you made them with the best heart you can make that decision. You made it with the purest heart possible. Maybe you made it for your own glory. Maybe you made it for your own lifting up. Maybe you fought like crazy for that promotion or that job and God protected you from actually getting what you wanted. God's grace is amazing. The story of David shows us that we're not butchering his character. God speaks about him and deals with him in a way that you and I cannot change or shake. But as we read his story, what do we see? David needed the guardrails too. David needed the guardrails of Abigail to come in and stop him from doing something vicious. David needed the guardrails of evil kings that he had no clue were doing the will of God when they walked in and said, we don't want you here, get out. Because what would have been next for the next king of Israel would have been very hard to overcome when you tried to put the nation of Israel back together. You see, coming up in this passage, Saul is getting ready to die greatest heartbreak of all is to know that his son Jonathan is going to perish with him, so is the rest of his family, and David will be made king very, very soon after this. If he had went to war against the nation of Israel, the people that he would have been swinging his own sword against, he would have now been asking to follow him as king. That gets to be a really messy story unless God shows up through wicked people and says, nope, go away. Stop, not a step further. That's the God you and I serve. He is loving powerful he has promised you will overcome and he has promised that all the things that happen to you are for your blessing the blessing of other people and for his glory to say anything other than that is to deviate from scripture and this is not a time you and i can do that we need bigger anchors than what we have access to in this world we need godly anchors holding us down if you want to come and pray this morning this time is yours